0: Well, this is a disturbing passage that Lisa has read for us. You don't have to read very far into the passage before you are disturbed, perhaps even offended. Take a look at verse 1, for instance, where Amos refers to women as cows of Bashan. As a general rule, it's not nice to call women cows, but Amos does. Uh, Women are the trendsetters in society. They've always been the final guardians of morals, fashions, and standards. And consequently, Amos is able to hit upon the heartbeat of society by examining its typical women. These, These women may not have been directly involved in mistreating the poor, but their incessant demands for luxuries drove their husbands to even greater injustices. Now, uh, verse 2 is a reference here to fishhooks. Well, in our culture, that might be a fashion statement. Uh, You know, there are all kinds of piercings that uh, people have, uh, eyebrows and noses and lips, so it might not be too strange uh, in our culture to see one uh, maybe make a fashion statement with a fishhook, piercing. But um, the Assyrians uh, were known for their brutality when they conquered a nation. And uh, what they would do is take fishhooks and uh, place them uh, either through the the lower lip uh, or the cheek, And then they'd have this string that they would connect the other ends of the fishhooks uh, to each other. And so they would lead people like a string of fish out of their native land uh, back to Assyria. Uh, The Assyrians uh, were also known to humiliate uh, the captured people in addition to putting fishhooks uh, through their face somewhere. Uh, they also stripped them naked. And so, in great pain and sorrow and humiliation, uh, they were carried off like fish on a stringer. Verse 4, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Wait a minute. Did I read that right? Uh, this is God talking to his people through Amos, and it certainly seems that God is saying, hey, y'all come on uh, to church and uh, just send all you want. Well, that's what the people were doing. The Lord is using sarcasm here, and Amos is communicating that. Uh, it, it, it all started this way. The, the, the kings of Israel did not want their people to go to the southern kingdom of judah and offer their sacrifices in jerusalem and so they set up rival centers of worship in the cities uh, like bethel and gilgal bethel which means house of god is a place where uh, jacob met the lord so they figured that was a good place that they could set up worship and gilgal was or gilgal was uh, just opposite the jordan uh, from uh, Jericho. So th- these were significant places. And so the kings of Israel thought, well, if we get our people to uh, just go to local towns uh, rather than all the way down to Jerusalem, and we don't really like those people that much anyway, uh, this would work out better for everyone else. This is a foreshadowing of uh, what we see in the New Testament. And John 14 says, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is foreshadowed in Amos chapter 4 uh, where the reference is that you go only to Jerusalem. That was the only way uh, that you could make an acceptable sacrificial offering to the Lord. Um, Anyway, the people of Israel uh, love their corporate worship. It was a, a corrupt form of worship. It was disobedient in both heart and in action, but they loved it. It's always wrong to evaluate worship by how it pleases us, because it is possible uh, for corrupt and disobedient worship to be wonderfully pleasing to us. Of course, we don't want to get into thinking that worship must hurt or be unpleasant to be holy and acceptable. That isn't the point. The point is is that we don't first evaluate worship by how it makes us feel. We evaluate it by how it honors God. Then in verses 6 through 13, we see perhaps the most disturbing images of all. Amos points to one devastating event after another, after another, after another, uh, has fallen upon the people of Israel. Uh, verse 6 so the people of Israel are hungry. There's a reference there to clean teeth. That does not mean that the Lord sent dentists there or dental hygienists you know, to clean their teeth, it means their teeth were clean because they didn't have any food to put into their mouths and they didn't have any food because in verses seven and eight we see that there was no rain there's a mention there that uh, god would send rain in one region but not in another and um, it wasn't too long ago i was uh, in my house looking out the uh, window in the front yard and it was bright and sunny And uh, then I went out to uh, the back porch and noticed that it was raining, and it was raining pretty hard. And so I went back to the front uh, room and looked out the window, and it was sunshiny and bright. And the other house, it was dark and coming down uh, pretty steadily. Uh, So there is a dividing line where the the rain uh, stops and where it begins. And that has to do with God. He is in control of the weather. He is in control of his creation. Verse 9, uh, Amos tells us that the Lord sent blight and mildew and ruined gardens and vineyards and fig trees and olive trees. Uh, this was the source of their food. And uh, in addition to not sending rain, uh, you know, God sent other things to uh, ruin their crops. Verse 10, we read about Uh, The pestilence that that came, uh, similar to that of Egypt. And also that their young men were dying by the sword and their horses were carried away. Terrible things have happened to the people of Israel. There's no doubt about it. This is a disturbing passage of scripture. It seems like a good place to pause now and discuss some weighty matters about God. We've uh, scared up a few of them in this fourth chapter of the book that uh, bears the name of Amos. And uh, Amos, uh, in this book, but more specifically in this chapter, invites us to consider some serious questions about God. So here's the first one. Do you really need God? If you're in good health, Got plenty of money. There's no real threat from other nations. Why do you need God? In the 8th century B.C. in Israel, God was irrelevant. He was not fashionable. He did not suit the tastes of the cows of Bashan. In today's culture, I mean that was the culture in 8th century B.C., in, Israel, in today's culture, here in the good old USA, doesn't it seem that God is also irrelevant? That he's no longer in style? His moral standards are considered to be not only antiquated, but also restrictive? Why can't people decide for themselves what is right and wrong? Why do we need God to tell us that? Why can't you choose to be any gender you want? Why does God get to decide whether you're male or female? Why can't we decide that? Why can't you abort your baby if the cost and inconvenience of having a baby is more than you want to take on? Why can't you take advantage of others for your own financial gain? They were doing that in 8th century B.C. Israel, and it happens in our own culture as well. It's so much easier to just simply redefine morality than it is to obey God or even acknowledge him. We need look no further than the history of our own congregation to tell us how we don't think we really need God unless there is some kind of external doorstep or external threat at our doorstep. Uh, on your way out this morning, if you look over here to the far bit to your right, uh, there is a picture. There it was taken in the 30s. Uh, not of the entire congregation of First Christian Church is what we were known for so many years. Uh, that's just the men's Bible study class, over 300 of them. Uh, during the Second World War, uh, attendance at First Christian in Charleston. Uh, averaged well over a 1,000, around 1,100 was the peak. Uh, The community wasn't nearly as big then as it is now. And why were so many people coming to church? Well, there was an external threat. Uh, We, as a nation, sensed that we needed God. As soon as the war was over, attendance in church began to decline, including our own. Uh, Seems that the more progress we make culturally, the less we seem to need God. And why do we think we don't need God? Well, we're a prosperous nation. We have technology. We have science to guide us. And we have fashionable morals. Who needs God when you have everything we have? God is not only irrelevant in our country, he's in our way. And there are places in the world today where Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds, some places in South America and Africa and India, even China. So why is the church growing in these regions, but not here? Well, you know, people in poor nations know that they need god but we are a prosperous fashionable nation so we don't need god as far as the majority of people in the U.S. today are concerned god is irrelevant in our scientific age we are not very likely to connect events in the world with the actions of the almighty if there is a drought As there had been for at least three years in Israel, we learned this from 1 Kings, we are more likely to associate the problem of a drought with global warming slash climate change uh, than we are to recognize uh, that God may be telling us something. Like the people some 2,800 years ago, we don't seem to think that we really need God. We're getting along just fine without him. At least that's what we think. That's how we live. So, what does God do? Well, He sends warning messages to get people's attentions. These warnings come wrapped up, in what we would call, natural disasters. Amos references uh, plagues in Egypt. And so um, let's go back to that reference just for a moment. When God sent Moses to go to Pharaoh and uh, say that he wants uh, Pharaoh to let his people go, the people of Israel, so that they may go and worship. And Pharaoh says, no, and then there's a series of plagues. And after each plague, Pharaoh would come to Moses or send for Moses and say, uh, go to your God and ask him to remove this, this plague. It's more than we can bear. And so Moses would go to God and God would lift uh, the plague. And Moses would ask, uh, well, you said we could go. And Pharaoh would say, well, I changed my mind. And he did that after every plague had been lifted. He hardened his heart. See, there's a difference in character and behavior. When you think you need God, God whatever you want uh, whatever it takes I will do that but as soon as God does what you want you think oh things are fine now I guess I don't need God after all and then the heart gets a little harder and in Pharaoh's case it multiplied over and over and over and over I won't go all ten times Um, but you get the point while suffering uh, you know, Pharaoh acknowledges he needs God. But when God takes sufferings away, uh, Pharaoh doesn't think he needs God anymore. Do you know that disasters are often instruments of mercy? I didn't sound right, <laughs> did it? Could disasters be an instrument of mercy? In Luke 13, uh, there were uh, some people who were following Jesus and uh, somebody came, talked to him about uh, those uh, Galileans whose blood uh, Pilate had mixed with uh, the sacrifices and uh, that was offensive, Uh, it was abhorrent. And so they wanted to know what Jesus thought about that. And Jesus said here in Luke 13, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, disasters should prompt us to repent. And that's why God sends them. And this is what Amos is telling the people of Israel. He's saying, God is communicating with you in a way that you ought to be able to understand disaster has come upon you so that you will come to him and you will repent. But they weren't doing it. So God sends another disaster and this happens time after time, after time. six times uh, we uh, see where uh, the people of Israel rebuffed uh, Amos's call for them to repent after a disaster. So uh, this is something about God uh, that we need to realize and, and learn. let it it's incorporated in, into our theology. Our understanding of who God is is that God sometimes sends mercy cloaked in disaster. Now there's a second question about God that Amos invites us to consider. And uh, it's the question that's similar. Is God behind natural disasters or disasters caused by humans? Or is God only behind blessings? Now, it's easy for us to associate God with blessings. You're sick. You go to God. You pray. He sends healing. You're grateful for that. And we come to think that God is only the source of things that are good, things that we enjoy, things that bring relief from pain or from misery or from a financial burden. Um, Surely uh, that's the character of God uh, because God is a God of... Well, let's see if you can fill in the blank. If you had to choose one word, only one term, to define the character and nature of God, what's the first word that comes to mind? God is a God of Exactly. That's what we say. Most people believe that above all else, God is a God of love. And it's true. God is a God of love. But sometimes we stumble when we struggle to understand God in a world where, we wonder how a loving God could permit some things to happen to humans. For instance, how could a loving God allow mass shootings resulting in the deaths of many, including many young schoolchildren? How could a loving God permit a pandemic to spread over the entire world, killing thousands and hampering our way of life? How could a loving God stand by and permit so many injustices in the world? The list goes on. How could a loving God permit much less cause disasters or evil or proliferate uh, such things in the world? Well, the the reasoning goes like this. Uh, Major premise, a loving God would never allow evil or injustice to prevail. Second premise, God is a God of love. Conclusion, therefore, God would never allow evil or injustice to prevail if he is a loving God. Isn't that how we think? Isn't that the theological perspective in our culture today? Yes, it is. You know it is. So how do you deal with a problem that God doesn't prevent natural or human disasters from taking place either god is not all all powerful or he is not all loving he can't be both all powerful and all loving at the same time logic demands that we come to such a conclusion or so it seems there is an alternative point of view which i want to present to you now While it is true that God is a God of love, God demonstrated that love by sending his son into the world to die for us. We do know John 3, 16, don't we? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We know that verse. But love, even though God is a God of love, is not the most accurate term to describe the character or nature of God. Are you shocked? In uh, verse 2 of Amos chapter 4, we see that the Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks even the last of you with fish hooks. The Lord has sworn by his what? Holiness. Not by his love. He's sworn by his holiness. And while it's certainly true, please do Don't misunderstand. God is a God of love. But he is known not by his love. He is sworn not by his love, but by his holiness. And it's certainly true that God is a God of love, but you will never find a passage anywhere in Scripture that says, love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. But you will find a verse in the Bible in Isaiah 6 where it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the Hebrew language, intensity is communicated by repetition. So for the Bible to say that God is holy is saying something. To say that God is holy, holy, that's really saying a lot. But when the Bible says God is holy, 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 we're talking about the highest possible degree of holiness. So more than anything else, God is holy. What does the word holy mean anyway? The word Uh, in its original language means otherness or apartness. Uh, So let me explain it this way. God is not part of his creation. He is separate from it. He is distinct from it. He is set apart from humanity. Uh, That is his nature or his essence is divine and not human. God is not a superman Or the ultimate man. God is not merely smarter than any man. Stronger than any man. Older than any man. Or better than any man. You can't measure God on man's chart at all. He is divine and we are human. So let me ask you something. Do you want to know who God is as he really is? As he defines himself? Or do you want to know... God as culture defines him. Well, let that sink in for a moment while we go to a third question. Do you want to be a biblical Christian or a cultural Christian? If you want to be a cultural Christian, then you will identify with the people of Israel in the 8th century B.C., uh, they were, you know, quote-unquote, cultural Christians. Of course, they, were, they lived before Christ uh, came, but um, so let's call them just cultural religious people. Um, if you want to be a cultural Christian, that's easy to do. Uh, you pick it up from the culture. Uh, Radio, TV, internet, social media uh, provide plenty of opportunities for you to learn about the God that you like to believe in. The God who always heals, the God who always blesses you with prosperity and always shields you from danger. There are plenty of places you can go to have that concept of God reinforced. This is why we did that series earlier in the summer about fake good news Um, It creates cultural Christians. But we're not in the business of creating cultural Christians here. We want to develop biblical Christians, meaning that we want you to know God as he really is and follow him as he bids us to follow him. If you want to be a biblical Christian, you're going to have to develop a thoroughly biblical understanding of disasters. How do you do that? Well, just sit tight for a moment as we go through uh, Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. I'm just going to summarize uh, these things, Uh, but but it's enough to to give you an idea of of what God calls us. God causes hunger, he withholds rain, he sends blight, mildew, and pestilence, he kills their young men with a sword, he carries away all their horses, and he overthrew some of them. And after each one of these uh, six um, mentions of things that he did out of his mercy to get people to repent, it says... Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord, over and over and over and over and over again. Was that six times? I intended for it to be. what do we learn from these repeated warnings? That acts of mercy are sometimes wrapped in disasters. God did these things. He sent disasters to warn his people of judgment to come if they did not repent. disasters and suffering is a multifaceted subject in Scripture. And developing uh, biblical mindsets means that we have to look at every facet. You know, there are uh, primary causes of disasters and there are secondary causes. Primary causes, uh, God is behind everything. He's in control of the weather. He's in control of, of creations. But there are secondary factors like uh, you know, rain patterns, and some people would say uh, uh, global warming or climate change uh, has caused these kinds of things. Uh, I don't know about. I just know that behind all of it, uh, there is an all-powerful God. And then there's the huge, vital component of television. Uh, television news, especially, looks for the most graphic compelling images and video uh, because those images boost ratings. There is often a human interest angle in news coverage. Uh, for instance, uh, a family may be interviewed who lost all of their possessions in a flood. You know, If you keep up with the news, you know there was a major flood in eastern Kentucky this week, and so there. Uh, this will be part of the news. Um, you might also uh, see someone interview Uh, someone who lost a loved one in a tornado or some other disaster and that is designed to help us uh, connect with people and that also raises ratings. And Oftentimes uh, there is an appeal to give to some relief organization. And after you see all of this there comes an analysis uh, with a lot of finger pointing. So the media will harp on what the government didn't do to prevent this disaster or assign plenty of blame for not doing enough in the aftermath. Political parties make hay of this. Uh, This wouldn't have happened if our party were in charge. If our policies had been in place, things would look a lot different now that these policies are in under the oversight of the other party whom you should vote out and vote us in. That's the, the message there. Uh, so there's social analysis, there's political analysis, there's also psychological analysis. Experts weigh in on what motivated a shooter to kill 20 children. Was it uh, that he was bullied or uh, he had poor uh, mental health? It wasn't He didn't have access to uh, treatment or maybe the video games that he played or the one we hear all the time that's the cause of everything is lax gun control. So disasters are examined from the perspective of racism and environmentalism. If this disaster had struck a white neighborhood, would government response be any different was this hurricane caused by global warming and what should be done about that? And then the new cycle is over and the most recent disaster is no longer a compelling story. And we're back to normal again until the net's bombing or the next mass shooting or hurricane or tsunami and then it starts all over again. But in all of this very predictable news coverage, there is one enormously important fact that is never mentioned. That all these catastrophes were the hand of God and foretastes of greater judgment to come. After all the videos, after all the human interest stories and the appeals for aid and relief, after all the political and sociological and environmental analysis, you never hear the news anchor say something like this, quote, Let us not forget this disaster was ultimately by the hand of God. He did it. It is a foretaste and a merciful warning that he will one day judge the world for sin. We are no different from the people who were swept away in the tsunami. Unless we repent and turn to God, we too will perish. Well, that's the news for July 31st. Thanks for tuning in. Good night. You won't hear that. But if you had been listening to National Public Radio back in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit, you would have heard Daniel Shore say that if there was an intelligent designer of nature, he has a lot to answer for. According to Daniel Shore, no God would pound a people with a terrible storm, as Katrina had, gone, had done. The, the cultural God would never do anything like this, and so when something like this happens, what are you left to conclude? Maybe that cultural God doesn't exist, or maybe no God of any kind exists. But of course, uh, such a sentiment utterly ignores God's holiness and the sinfulness and rebellion of this world against God and its maker. Such a sentiment also ignores God's mercy. As we read in these verses, famines, droughts, plagues, earthquakes, they are divinely imposed disciplines meant to recall mankind to God. Well, we're asking some pretty serious questions about God, aren't we? Do you really need God? We know that blessings can be attributed to God, but what about disasters? Can disasters also be attributed to God? Do you want to be a biblical Christian or a cultural Christian? You want to follow the biblical God or the cultural God? And uh, that leads us to one final serious question about God that Amos invites us to consider They find it in verse 12. It says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. The question is this Are you prepared to meet God? God is saying to the people of Israel, You would not return to me as your Savior. So now, prepare to meet me as your judge. You know, Israel had passed the point of no return. Their hearts had become so hardened that the word of God no longer penetrated. Persistent refusal to believe what God says, persistent refusal to obey his commandment when summoned to do so, hardens the heart so much that it becomes impervious to penetration and so poisons the mind that it can no longer function correctly. The heart has become sermon-proof and sickness-proof. The Jews in Jesus' day were so steeped in unbelief that when the Messiah came among them, was God in the flesh, and performed great and fantastic miracles of divine power before their very eyes, they could not see what was obvious that he indeed was the Son of God among them. In Revelation chapter 9, John tells us that it will be like this at the end of the age. He tells of the plagues being visited upon the earth, echoes of Pharaoh in Egypt. And then he says that the rest of mine, quoting from Revelation 9, the rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues. They still did not repent of their sins. So I'm left to ask uh, one final question after I said I just mentioned the final question. Something I want you to consider. What do you think would have happened if God, instead of sending a prophet to Israel to proclaim a a message of repentance, uh, lest there be judgment, what if God had sent a prophet to Assyria, uh, to those godless people, Um, who didn't have any knowledge of him whatsoever and were bent on conquering the entire world as they knew it at that time. How do you think those people would have responded if they had heard a message uh, similar to what the people of Israel heard from Amos? Do you know that there is or there was a prophet who God did send to Assyria? lived and prophesied right about the same time as Amos. Uh, Jesus spoke of him later when uh, people came to him and uh, had a a question. Uh, They wanted to know if Jesus would perform some kind of miracle for them. Uh, They wanted a sign to see if he really was the Messiah. And uh, Jesus said... Uh, In Matthew 12, uh, 28, no sign will be given to this evil and adulterous generation except for the sign of Jonah, that even as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. You know that God sent Jonah to Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, about the same time that God sent Amos to Israel. And do you know how the people of Nineveh responded when they heard Jonah? He had a very short message. I'm sure you'd probably rather have uh, Jonah come and speak than have Jared or myself because we take several minutes, and Jonah just had a one-sentence message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will perish. It's all that's recorded for us. And what happened? Well, the people of of Nineveh repent. They clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes. They even put sackcloth on their cattle. Um, Pretty stark contrast with the cows of Bashan and uh, Amos' day. So what are we left to think? There comes a point when you can make yourself so hard to God and to his word that it no longer penetrates it just kind of bounces off you can still participate in religious services you can still go through all of the motions but the word of God has not penetrated we live in such a culture where scripture is readily available there are churches and virtually every community but we don't always hear what God is saying to us. Perhaps we've become too hard. Perhaps God is just out of fashion. He's no longer in style. And perhaps we think that we are ready to meet God. Just look at my record. Friends, friends, you don't want God to evaluate you on the basis of your record. The gospel message is this, is that when this life is over, and it will be for all of us, some of us sooner rather than later, and when life has come to an end, we will meet God, and he will evaluate us either on the basis of what we have done or he will evaluate us, judge us on the basis of what another has done in our place. The message of the gospel is that all of the wrath uh, that God had been storing up because his word was not penetrating the hearts of the people to whom he sent his messenger with a message to repent. He took all of that wrath that was boiling on the inside, clearly evident, meant for all who would not repent, and he laid all of that on his own son, which hardly seems like an act of love at all to do that to your own son, but he did it for our sakes. Christ took our place in judgment. And so we will join those of us who have received Christ and his mercy and his grace that is proclaimed to us through the gospel. We'll meet God not as judge, but as savior. You are going to meet God. For some, it will be sooner than you expected. But no matter when it comes, will you be ready? If you're not sure, uh, that's why we are here. Uh, Jared, our very able associate pastor and successor in waiting, uh, knows the gospel very well, uh, as do our elders. You can come to me too after care surgery is over <laughs> I want you to know that God above all is holy, 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 meaning he cannot tolerate sin. And the only way for him to get rid of that sin was by an act of incredible love for us. That Christ absorbed the incredible judgment that we deserved so that we might have what Christ himself deserves. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we recognize that we are sinners and we are without hope unless you intervene. But you have intervened. You did send your Son to this earth to become one of us, born as a, as a baby uh, from the Virgin Mary, uh, fully God and yet fully man. this child who grew up and became our sacrificial lamb, all of our sins were laid upon him. And not only is he our lamb without blemish who absorbed our sins, uh, he is also our good shepherd. And we're so grateful that because of what Christ endured on our behalf, that when we come to meet you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth and all that is in it, that we may meet you uh, not as our judge, but as our Savior, all because of what you had done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.